Okay, if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, familiar name that we'll be looking at, Gideon. Now, some of you know him as a little child right now, but he has grown up here, and so we will look at him, but uh, in a different perspective. In uh, Judges chapter 6, this will probably be a three uh, part series on, on Gideon because a lot of information in Judges is given to him. Uh, in May of uh, 1855, an 18-year-old boy went to the deacons of a church in Boston. He had been raised in a Unitarian church, uh, totally, almost totally ignorant of uh, the gospel. And he had moved to Boston to uh, make his fortune and there began to attend a Bible preaching church. And in April of 1855, his Sunday school teacher had come to the store where he was working and shared the gospel with him, uh, asking him to trust in the Lord Jesus as his Savior. And he did and then applied for membership in the church. One fact quickly became obvious this young man was almost totally ignorant of the Bible and biblical truth. Years later, his Sunday school teacher said this of him, I can truly say that I've seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think the committee of the church seldom met an applicant for membership who seemed more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of the gospel truth, still less to fill any space of public or extended usefulness. Nothing happened very quickly to change their minds. The deacons decided uh, to put him on a year-long instruction program to teach him basic Christian truths. Not only was he ignorant of uh, spiritual truths, he was also barely literate. And he spoke grammar very badly, notorious for bad speaking grammar. The year-long probation did not help very much. At his second interview, there was only a minimal uh, improvement. That he, uh, but because they did recognize that his commitment was sincere and that he was committed, it was obvious to them, they thought, that he had become a Christian. And so they accepted him as a church member. Over the next years, I'm sure that many people looked at this young man and convinced that God would never use a man like that. They wrote off. Dwight L. Moody. But God didn't. By God's infinite grace and persevering love, D.L. Moody was transformed into one of the most effective and significant servants of God in church history. A man whose impact is still with us today. One thing that we need to understand, one of the great truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, and we need to keep this in mind, when God looks at us, He doesn't see us for what we are. He sees us for what we can become. 
as he works in our lives. And that's so very important. Many people give up on service in the church, give up on ministry, because they have forgotten this one truth. They have forgotten how God views them. And we also forget it many times too, don't we? Because we become very critical. We look at the negatives instead of the positives of the person. What they can become. God is in the business of taking weak, insignificant people and transforming them by his presence in their lives. He begins with us where we are, as we are. And he knows our weaknesses, our failures, our discouragements, our doubts, our inadequacies, but never views us as unusable. And I thank God for that. He doesn't say you get rid of those weaknesses, those inadequacies, and then I will see if I can use you. No, instead he comes to us in our weakness with the promise of his presence that will transform our inadequacies into his strength. And we need to re remember that. The truth of God's transforming presence is vividly portrayed in the life of one of the greatest Hebrew heroes, excuse me, that we will see in the Old Testament that's mentioned in the New, and that is Gideon. Gideon may have ended up as a hero, even listed in God's hall of, of uh, faith in Hebrews, but he did not begin there. He's an encouragement to all of us. He's an example for hope for all of us. The conditions that Gideon lived in, we need to look at those first. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian, seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come upon the, uh, with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no substance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Why did they cry to the Lord? That's a very important scripture there. So Israel brought, was brought very low because of Midian. Because of Midian. Because of Midian. And the sons of Israel then cried to the Lord. Now I want to stop there for a moment. We'll look at the other scripture. We're looking at verses 1 through 24 in this uh, sermon. 
But I want us to look once again. Here again, it's a cycle of sin and judgment. The cycle of sin and judgment again unfold just like it has beforehand. But there is something unique about this and this time. Again, the, the evil they did were in the eyes of the Lord, it says. This caused the predictable effect to happen. And that is the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The Midianites, they were descendants of Abraham through Keturah. In Genesis 25, you'll find that. They were not always hostile to God's people. In Exodus chapter 2, we, we read that with Jethro. It seemed that as Israel's strength grew, though, the Midianites' aggression caused them to come to the point where they were in direct opposition to the Israelites. And so the Israelites had few places during this time, a few places of safety from the, the plundering Midianites. It was the mountain clefts, the caves, the defensible hills, the strongholds. Uh, you know, the, the pattern of oppression was so strong that every year during the harvest time, the Midianites, the Amalekites, old enemies that originally allied with Eglon in uh, Judges 3.3, and other eastern people, probably nomadic groups, came and they would uh, pillage every village. Scav uh, you know, they would just scavenge the land and ruin all the crops necessary for survival. In addition, they would rustle the livestock. And so they were as numerous as the locusts, it says. And they even brought new technology, as we'll read later on. They had camels, not cigarettes, but animals that they, they rode. They would travel up to four days without water. And so the Midianites had the capability of locating in one area in, in, within Israel's territory uh, and functioning, though, in a long-range mobile uh, possibility there because they could move about. Uh, and so we see that the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because, the Midian, because of the Midians, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now... Midian had so impoverished the Israelites that finally they turned to the Lord for help. But this was what I was reading to you earlier. So Israel was brought very low because, in verse 6, of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Why did they cry to the Lord? Because of the pain that they were going through. Not because of their sins. It says the Israelites cried to the Lord because of what the Midianites had done. For 40 years, Israel had known freedom and peace from their enemies. And this was what we studied with Deborah and, and Barak. And so, once again, the people took their eyes off the Lord, though, and focused their lustful gaze on the idols and evils of Baal worship. God once again came and chastised them, giving them 
the sinning Israelites over to the consequences of their sin. And so they went into bondage and servitude under a foreign nation. Now this time God used a group of desert people though. And led by the people of Midian. God uses chastisement. Not just because of sin. But because of showing his love for his people. God cannot sit idly by and watch his people destroy themselves. And he will do whatever he needs to do in chastising his people to get them to repent. To get them to see their evil. To get them to turn. He does not give up on us. So let's look at the cry. The Israelites cry for help. In verses 7 through 10, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet here. This is unique. We have not read that. He usually sends a deliverer, doesn't he? But here, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It, it, it was I who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of all your oppressors, and disposed them before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me. Once again, the people of Israel, they call out to God for help. As I've already said, every time in Judges when God's people called on him for help, it seemed like he immediately sent them a judge, a deliverer for deliverance. But not this time. This time was different. This time God sent a prophet because he had a message for them to hear. Because they were not crying out in repentance, they were crying out in pain. There's a great difference between a cry for help from trouble and a cry of repentance for sin, isn't it? And so, unless our suffering leads to repentance, it accomplishes no lasting results. And unless our cry for help is evidence of a holy desire to turn from our sin, not just escape our pain, our cry for help is only remorse. It's just like with people. They cry out, God, get me out of this mess. And a lot of times to get me out of this mess means get me out of this pain. Instead of repenting of what they should do. God, you know, uh, uh, just please help me so that I can move on. I'm, I'm just hurting so. You see, chastening assures us that we are truly God's children, but also it proves to us that God loves us. And it also shows us that we can't get away with rebellion. So these Israelites were not crying out in penance. They were crying out in pain. And God sends a prophet to the sinning Israelites. Now let's look at the confrontation here. God sends a prophet to confront the Israelites with their unfaithfulness. It says in verse 7, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up out of Egypt. It was I who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. 
It was I who, uh, you know, took care of the oppressors and disposed them before you. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me for the first time. He is not giving that deliberate deliverance. He sent a prophet. The unnamed unnamed prophet uh, came to remind them of God's past faithfulness to them by emphasizing his power. It was I who brought you from Egypt, his goodness. I delivered you. You didn't deserve it. I I delivered you, though. You cried out in repentance. And his right to be worshipped. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. You worship me. I'm the one in control. I'm the one that delivered you, not the gods here. Don't fear them. I am greater than them because I am the only God. And then he couples the message with a stern rebuke, though. But you have not obeyed me. God was answering the people's prayers by sending a prophet to remind them of who God was and how he had delivered them in the past from bondage. Also, the prophet gave them a rebuke because they were more into their pain than their sorrow over their sin. So he told them that they had not obeyed God, but instead rebelled against him. They had disobeyed God. Because they had not repented for their sin, God had to chastise them. God speaks to his children either through the loving voice of Scripture or the heavy hand of chastening. And if we ignore the first, then we must endure the second. One way or another, the Lord is going to get our attention and deal with us. The work of the prophet was only one step, though, towards eventual restoration. The phrase, but you have not listened to me, seems to imply that there was no record of corporate repentance following his speech. So therefore, they are simply left to ponder their rebellion here uh, without any expectation of restoration or redemption. Thus, the next segment is unexpected. You'd say, okay, God's just going to leave them there forever. No, the next segment is very important. It definitely serves to reinforce the unmerited favor of God's provision of his covenant people. It shows his faithfulness when the people were unfaithful. And I thank God for this because so many times, number one, it begins with our salvation. We don't deserve it. Number two, it it deals with our lives as we walk with him. So many times we don't deserve, well, all the time, we really don't deserve what he gives us, how he blesses us. And a lot of times, even in our ignorance and even in our wrongdoing and going the wrong way, it seems like somehow or another he intervenes and he shows his unmerited love and grace. But I am so thankful for that. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, it says in Isaiah 63, 9. We're told by the psalmist that God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities in Psalm 104, 10. God in his mercy doesn't give us what we deserve, as someone said. And in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. 
The scene shifts, though, to one apparently insignificant member of, of the nation of Israel, as I talked about. And this is a person who you wouldn't think would be used by God, but he was used by God, and that is Gideon. He was tucked away from harm, hiding his wheat from the Midianites in the wine press. Now, you don't do the, the, you know, the, the, the wheat, uh, sifting the wheat there in a wine press. You do it in open air. You do it, some would do it in the mountaintops where the wind would blow and separate that. And, uh, and others would do it in open field. But he was in the wine press hiding from the Midianites who would come in and scavenge the land and, and overtake them and overtake their crops and overtake their food. So when you consider this kind of man Gideon was at this time, you wonder why God selected him. I mean, man wouldn't select him, would he? Uh, he wouldn't be the type. He was a lot like David one. He was the youngest. I mean, you know, they looked at all the older sons, and they're the ones that they would, uh, man would have selected. But God selected David, didn't he? And so the same is here with Gideon. God often chooses the weak things of the world, we're told in Scripture, to accomplish the great things for his glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read about Gideon. Attempting the almost impossible task, if you can see it, uh, threshing gr the grain in a partially enclosed wine press. I mean, there he is in there hiding, beating it out. Ordinarily, you would see that in openness, I've already said. So the oppression of the Midianites had reduced Israel to such pathetic activities as this. Not only with him, but with the, the whole nation. They were hiding everywhere. And it is to this unlikely man that the angel of the Lord came. Now Gideon's name means to cut down, hacker, or hewer. He's pretty, probably a pretty strong guy, uh, you know, working with his uh, body and hands and all. But he was the son of Joaz. Uh, and Gideon was the youngest son of the, the, uh, the tribe and so of the family. And he came from one of the smallest families in the tribe. And at the time when Gideon had a visit from God's messenger, which we'll see was, uh, I believe, the, uh, the son of God, we see that he was the only son of Joaz, for he had already lost his other sons to the Midianites. You see that in Judges 9, 18, 19. Only, he was the only baby of the family that remained. Only child of family, the baby. So let's look at his commission, Gideon's commission in verses 11 through 16. In verses 11 through 16, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, and uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joaz, the Ab-Ezrite, as the son of Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him the Lord is with you O valiant warrior let's stop there O valiant water warrior O mighty warrior Gideon didn't see himself as that Gideon you know though had a lot of positive traits but he didn't see a lot of his positive traits in other words he, he was a man, I believe, of courage because he didn't be, uh, bow to his knee to Baal like his father and his family did. Gideon had boldly withstood uh, stood the inroads of idolatry. 
and for his courage, he is being honored by the Lord at this time. A lot of times we don't see what is going on. We stand strong for the Lord and, and we just see other people that are, are doing mighty things or we think they are doing mighty things and we say, boy, I, you know, I'm just not like them. And, but we're standing strong in our convicts, convictions for the Lord. This was like Gideon was and God sees that and God honors that. God saw what Gideon could become and God, uh, you know, would patiently work with him to prepare him for leadership here. God is always ready to make us what we ought to be if we're willing to submit to his will and his what? In Ephesians 2, we see that. He's always working on us, Philippians 2. It is wonderful that God doesn't necessarily see us the way other people see us, so, isn't it? That's encouraging. Other people look at us often and see our flaws and our failures, and that's all they can point out. God looks at us, though, and sees our possibilities through his transforming presence. It's so important for us to remember that and to look at ourselves and other people that way. Look at the possibilities in their life that God can work with and they can become through his transforming presence. Gideon is, is probably a, uh, you know, he's cast down and he's humiliated at this time, uh, as you, you can tell by his comments. But he is, as I said, a man of courage who stood firm against bowing to, uh, to Baal worship. He also does not spend his days fretting about how things were and how things could be and, and what they, he hoped them to be and just give up on it. He's a realist. And his actions are tied to the present. He's doing what he can, the best he can. Gideon's answer to the messenger's comments reveal his belief in, belief in Yahweh with a, a, a somewhat a presence of humility. It says, oh my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, note the plural there, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his miracles that our fathers told us about, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us. Though Gideon emphasized both courage and humility here, I believe, in his reply, he also expressed doubt, a lack of faith. His reply identifies himself also with his people, the plural there. And the reply is also a plain acknowledgement that the suffering he and his people are experiencing is a result of the withdrawal of God's blessing. He saw that. He doesn't doubt the reports of the Lord's past dealings with his people, but he questions what is going on now. Why is it going on this way now, Lord? The Lord not only permitted Gideon to express his concerns, but also supplied his answer to God's needs. You see, we need to be very careful when we're walking with the Lord that we don't look at things in an acceptable way because everybody else is doing it. And we don't see what God is really doing. 
A lot of times, how many times have people have said, well, you know, I believe that maybe this is God's judgment upon America for what God's people are not doing. And, and you hear other Christians say, oh, well, God is love. God would never do that. Why would he do something like that? What's going on here? I don't understand that, you know. Why do you look at it that way? My goodness. God is not that way. Well, the Lord not only permitted Gideon to express his concerns here, but also supplied his answer to Gideon's needs. First was the problem of his discouragement. Notice the words Gideon used, oh, or if, why, where. Now the Lord has abandoned us. All of these. Gideon, along with most of Israel, was defeated and discouraged. Kind of reminds me of a little story. Uh, he knew about how God had worked in the past. But he didn't see him working that way in the presence. You see, if we're not careful, our discouragement or our lives and what's going on around us will overtake us to the point where we don't see God at work in our lives. This is why, you know, we want to keep on pointing out. Hey, look every week. See what God is doing in your life. You need to. You need that. You need it as you walk by faith. Reminds me of a little girl who was listening to her mother tell some Bible stories about great people of the past like Moses and Joshua and Samson and Daniel. Finally, she turned to her mother and said, Mommy, you know God was much more exciting back then. Gideon felt a lot, probably a lot like this little girl. He loved to hear about what God had done in the past and all of us do. He believed thoroughly in God's power then. But where were the miracles now? And we do the same thing today. Because we don't look for God. We don't see Him. You know, we're so self-sufficient. We don't need God, we think. We think we're doing all of this and we forget who has provided all of this for us. How could they possibly deal with the Midianites? Gideon was thinking. Of all the forms of discouragement, this is the worst for a believer to feel that God is not interested or think that God has turned his back is despair in its worst form. So this is where many Christians get to. By living a life in the efforts or in the power of their own effort and not seeing God at work. Gideon did not realize what was really going on. God had not abandoned his people. It was his people who abandoned him. And so they had turned their backs on him. Isn't it far easier to blame God for our problems than to recognize and deal with our sins and responsibilities? We see that. We see it in families. We see it in lives. Gideon was not suffering from a defeatist complex. He was defeated. The people were defeated. And the problem came because of them continuing to respond to their defeat with doubt. And the reason that they doubted was there was sin in their life that they were not recognizing. So the messenger, Jesus Christ, turned and fixed his gaze on on uh, Gideon and said, 
Go in your strength and deliver, deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I, for, for I have not, or I, have I not sent you? Have I not sent you? He was putting that in a question in the sense that he was trying to bring attention to Gideon. This is I. You're not being sent out by Israel. You're not being sent out by some individual. You're being sent out by me, God. There's probably not a single major figure in the Word of God whom God did not bring to, to realize a deep sense of his own inadequacy like he did with Gideon. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But God never leaves us with a sense of our own inadequacy. Paul in, ends verse 5 by saying in that same passage, But our adequacy is of God. And so when we, whenever we admit our inadequacy, God conf, uh, confronts us with the truth of his total adequacy. But we've got to come to that point. So in Judges 6.16, he made his promise to Gideon. Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Inadequate in ourselves, overwhelmingly adequate through our God. And so the lesson was for Gideon to learn. I wonder to what extent we've allowed the promise of God's adequacy to minister in our own life. How many of us really are letting God's adequacy take over in our own lives? To do that, we must understand our own inadequacy. We can't do it on our own. You see, your weakness does not hinder God. In fact, his pattern is to reveal his power in our weakness. If you'll look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, sometime it says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, uh, that the power of Christ may, be, may dwell in me. What we need most is not self-confidence, but God-confidence. That's what we need. God continues to lead Gideon into a deeper understanding of the unexpected guest. He assures Gideon that his presence will go with him and guarantees him success in Judges 6.16. Gideon needed to know God's promises were not merely figments of his imagination. So Gideon asks or that seeks for that confirmation in verses 17 through 24. So Gideon said to him, the Lord 